Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and here with me is Alex Stewart and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi, Alex. Hello. Hi, Seb. Hi, Joe. Uh, Today we talked about Wolverhampton Wanderers, or Wolves, as many people know them by. Uh, The main thing of interest today is uh, an exclusive conversation about the, the, the dangerous injuries that fireworks can cause, but that's later on in the episode. Uh, earlier on, we talked about the situation with Jeff Shee, uh, various people leaving their roles, and uh, Jeff Shee sort of maybe temporarily, maybe not, filling some of those footballing roles uh, alongside a committee. So uh, we got Tim Spears to clear that up for us. Did I introduce Tim already? Uh, no. No, didn't, did I? Uh, that's my mad. Uh, Tim Spears, of course, from The Athletic, who uh, writes about wolves and is insanely knowledgeable about wolves, joined us for this episode. And of course, I should have introduced him at the very beginning, but I didn't, because I can't do my job. We also talked about uh, the club's academy, uh, how the changing in structure may or may not affect George Mendes. Um, we talked about Adama Traore for a while, Raul Jimenez, how some of those players are, are fitting into the team together and whether Tim is afraid that any of them will leave. Are they a repeat of the Everton David Moyes team of 2010? That's the stupidest analogy of all time. Uh, also, we talk about their stadium, uh, potential expansion. We talk about Molyneux towards the end. And Seb has a little love affair with the museum at Molyneux don't you Seb I do I do I actually you know when when this comes out I took some pictures of um of my visit to the museum a few years ago so maybe um well maybe we'll push those out on Twitter yeah fantastic it's like a walking advert well anyway uh, if you want to read more of Tim's work or listen to the podcast that Tim records as part of the athletics offering the Molyneux view very interesting Alex's favorite podcast uh yes absolutely I don't know why I'm making that joke because it makes it sound like the podcast isn't good but it is. I just wanted to involve you, Alex. Uh, yes. Anyway, you can get a 90-day free trial. I'll imagine a 90-day free trial to read all of Tim's work, uh, which, listen, we highly encourage you to do so because, uh, as you will hear from today's episode, Tim knows what he's talking about. You won't find better coverage of Wolverhampton Wanderers anywhere else. So if you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90, that's TIFO and then the numbers 90, you can start your 90-day free trial and enjoy all the wonders of the written word. Anyway, uh, join Alex and Seb and I now in welcoming Tim Spears. Tim, I think one of the most logical places to start would be the the structure of the club as a whole. Um, over the last 18 months, obviously, uh, Kevin Thurwell has left. He's gone to New York Red Bulls. Laurie Dalrymple has gone. He was the managing director. Phil Hayward, the head of medical. Um, and Gareth Prosser, who's the head of the academy. It's all within the last 18 months. And um, in one of your more recent articles, uh, you discussed you describe how that the club isn't really isn't really trying to replace them um, man for man or at least but trying to sort of pivot towards a different style of hierarchy can you, can you explain a little bit more about that it's an interesting notion because obviously wolves are a club going places and you know their rise over the last two years in particular has been remarkable and yet we've seen quite a few senior staff have, as you've listed there have, have left and not been replaced externally so it's um I thought it was worth delving into recently to see exactly how that's worked and why that's come about and I mean each individual case is is different really which I won't I won't bore you with but in essence they've gone from what you'd call a pyramid structure where Jeff Shee will talk to um, managing director Laurie Dalrymple and sporting director Kevin Thelwell, and then they'll feed down instructions or whatever to people below them. 
Instead, now you've got, I'd say, seven, eight or nine heads of department have, have stepped up and they all now report to, to Jeff Shee. Um, so the most interesting one of these would be the sporting director, Kevin Thelwell, having left in January to go to New York Red Bulls after, what, 10, 11 years at the club. Um, and he hasn't been replaced at the moment. And as, as far as I understand, there are no plans to replace him for the immediate future. And instead of um, of that, of one role, uh, Jeff Shee is kind of working with like a committee of people who, who again, who've stepped up. So you've got like the head of analysis, Andrew Findlay. Um, you've got one of the chief scouts, Matt Hobbs. You've got the recruitment chief, John Marshall. Uh, these are names that won't be familiar, you know, even, even to even to hardcore Wolves fans. But they've stepped up to form a kind of a committee that Jeff Shee is overseeing. And um, and they're planning on keeping this going, certainly for the kind of next transfer window. And then they'll see where, what the shortage of expertise is and maybe hire someone externally at, at that juncture. Um, but it's a very different way of doing things. And Jeff Shee is entrusted... Um, people with new senior roles and new responsibilities and so far it's it's working for them um but yeah it is it is very unusual certainly with losing someone of kevin thelwell's experience and expertise over the last kind of 10 11 years many years in football for him not to be replaced is is a possible kind of alarm bell on the face of it but wolves are very comfortable with with what they're doing at the moment tim can i dive in and just ask uh, about this situation because it, it strikes me as it sounds very similar to um a situation at Manchester United where Ed Woodward appears to be, again, like working with a committee, as he puts it, um, with no footballing director. And we heard at that club, you know, two years ago that they were talking about hiring uh, someone for the role and there were lots of interviews and now we're hearing that actually that doesn't exist anymore and that, that that's not something they're looking for. Is it similar to Is it similar to that situation? I think we'll know in a few months and I think lockdown hasn't helped. So they did start looking for a sporting director replacement and went through the usual recruitment process and had a list of candidates ready to go in what would have been late February, which apparently reportedly included um, Dane Murphy, the American CEO at Barnsley. Um, And then lockdown happened and that was all put on hold. And as the weeks have gone on, that's now been put on hold indefinitely. So if they were to start a sporting director search now, they would do so with a, with a blank sheet of paper. Um, and I think it's not the best time to bring in such a key figure to the whole club while you're chatting to everyone on Zoom, I suppose, would be uh, a quite a basic but yeah, important issue. Um, and also financially, I mean, nobody knows how long this is necessarily going to go on and, and what the financial picture of the club is going to look like in three months' time. Will so you be going, able to buy any players? Yes, and that, uh, perhaps that extends as well to, are you going to spend hundreds hundred of thousands of pounds on a, on a, on a new sporting director mm-hmm. as well? So um, so I think those, those two things aligned with... Um, with perhaps not getting the candidate they would have wanted initially have led them to try a new approach. And um, obviously with Wolves, as ever, the caveat would be the fact that George Mendes is also heavily involved in the club. So when it comes to first team recruitment in the transfer window, whenever that happens, you know, he's a key player in that as well. So, so they feel they're not leaving themselves short, you know, at the moment. Tim, can I just ask about Jeff Shee, just for the sake of people that might not be up to speed with his role? Um, a couple of years ago, I um, had a conversation with Tom Bohr, who runs the uh, the Wolves blog, and he was talking about Jeff Shee's role when Foson first took over the club. And he he was it was interesting because I I had all kinds of sort of negative assumptions about what that would be like from a from a supporter's perspective. But he he described a guy that would would drink with fans outside pubs that would come to away games, um, and I spoke to a few other people in Wolverhampton and 
the the impression was entirely positive. I mean, no one had a bad word to say about him. Is that still the case now? Yeah, it's it's he's been an it's been an interesting few years for Jeff. I mean, I felt he kind of came in as a bit of a figurehead, really, um, to front up Foson's takeover. But but since in the past kind of few years, he really has kind of taken on an important role. And as as a brief aside, you know, during this lockdown period, he's he's really stepped up and led by example due to his experience of um, of uh, seeing how things have happened in China with coronavirus and Wolves have been brilliant on that front. Jeff leading from the front. But um, but yeah, he's um, he has kind of stepped up. Uh, yeah, the, the thing with drinking with away fans, I mean, that was very much a kind of a publicity stunt. You know, he's, he's not... <laughs> Even he's, Mike Ashley managed that, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he, he's not exactly a fan of Bank, Banks' Bitter, the uh, the local brewery in Northampton, <laughs> but um, as much as he might claim to be. So, um, but it, but what he has done, I mean, he free, it was interesting, he freely admitted when he joined that he knew nothing about football and that he would surround himself with people who did and with with experts in in high tier positions but in the, he's he has learned a lot in the last few years and he's a very methodical intelligent chap and he's not your average chairman you know he's not your your backslapping schmoozy boardroom chairman he'll often go and sit outside before a match 20 20 minutes maybe half an hour before kickoff you know he dis, he dislikes all that boardroom schmoozing um and he's given a lot to Wolves. I mean, he moved uh, initially. He was splitting his time between Shanghai and Wolverhampton, and then uh, not a very well trodden path. He decided to to leave Shanghai and move full time to Wolverhampton, um, and brought his family with him. So you know, made a sacrifice on that front. And you see him going to all sorts of games now. So he was at he was at um, Leamington FC for a Birmingham Senior Cup game against Wolves under-23s um, just just before lockdown. And that same week, he went to Accrington to watch the youth team get thumped by Chelsea, six or seven nil. So, and he'll often drive himself to these games, you know, and he, he just wants to go and learn. And um, and I think, like I said, he, he has learned a lot and he now feels comfortable to kind of step up in a more senior role. And he, he strongly dislikes egos, um, you know, they've got a real strong policy on not hiring people who are going to upset the rock the boat at Molyneux. So so he does things a little bit differently. And um, like I said, everybody's everybody seems quite comfortable with it and, and it works for Wolves. You mentioned George Mendes before. I mean, how has this sort of shift in hierarchy or, or even if it's a temporary shift in structure, how has this impacted uh, his his role? Do, do you know? I'm not sure it's affected his role too much in particular, but I guess what you've got to remember when you're hiring a sporting director at Wolves is that they have got to live with the fact that George Mendes is going to effectively sign most of the first team players. So that's a difficult one. If you want to go out and hire the best sporting director there is, you're probably not going to get somebody to agree to to um, be sidelined when it comes to, to specific high-end first-team recruitment. I mean, Kevin Thelwell played his part in some big sign-ins, including Adama Traore and um, Leander Dendonka. But as we saw in the last January window, I mean, the two senior signings that Wolves made were both were both Mendes boys, um, Pedence from Olympiacos and Leo Campana from, from Ecuador. So... Um, I don't, I, I don't think Mendes' role has changed much in particular. He's still a very important part. He's still um, advising Jeff Shee on a lot of matters. He still goes to quite a few games. You'll see him pop into the dressing room after matches, you know, when he's when he's there. Very unusual sight. Um, but like I said, when they're hiring Thelwell's replacement, if and when they do that, then the Mendes factor has got to be uh, taken into account. 
I mean, it's really interesting that, that even just that um, dynamic there, like you say, how are you supposed to have a, a sporting director if you know that you have an agent that works with the club and most of the yeah. first team players are going to come through through their roster? Presumably that means, I mean, if you think about the, the way that a normal sporting director would work, that presumably just massively narrows the range of players that you might be able to even, what, be even worth scouting. How, how, how does that work ever? Absolutely, and and in Kevin Thelwell, they had they had someone who was who was I guess prepared to put up with that, and although it's still a very important role in terms of signing under twenty three players and and scouring the domestic market and improving the academy, but yes, when it comes to to actual first team players, the way I understand how it worked was um, Kevin Thelwell and his recruitment team would would put put suggestions forward for players who might improve the first team. And and perhaps so would Mendes, and it and it would be up to Nuno ultimately to decide which way he wanted to go, and that's certainly what happened in January. I know there were uh, a few, quite a few players put forward by Thelwell and his recruitment team that were turned down. I think Danny Olmo was was one of them, um, and uh, and they Nuno being one of George Mendes' best mates for twenty years. You know he's often going to side with a man who he who he really trusts. You know to get to get the job done. So on the face of it, it shouldn't work, and on the face of it. Um, Maybe the fans wouldn't be too happy about an agent having such uh, influence over a club, but you know, the opposite is true. You know, Wolves fans have worn George Mendes masks to an away game before, so well the players are great, you, right? Yeah, exactly. The players are great, and look, they're having the time of their lives, and it's the best period in this club's history for for forty years. So, ultimately, you know, it might not be um, a traditional way of doing it by any means, but um, but the Wolves fans are more than happy with how it's going, of course. I know Wolves have lost their head of academy. Um, and the only player in the first team squad that's come through the ranks at all recently is Morgan Gibbs White, who doesn't really feature a great deal. Do you think the influence of Mendes means that Wolves are much more geared towards signing first team ready players of senior experience and that the academy has kind of taken a, a backward uh, role in that? And, and do you think ultimately that's going to harm the development of the club going forwards? Yes, I mean, with the first team recruitment, apart from Jimenez, who I think was 28 when they signed him, they do tend to buy players in their early 20s, uh, age 20 to 25, for 10, 15, 20 million pounds that they see uh, a big potential for improvement and ultimately a return on the investment that they're putting in because Fosun are an investment firm. That's in everything they do, they look for value for money. And the academy, unfortunately, is, is a bit perhaps behind others in terms of being able to, to develop first team players and the first team has completely overtaken the rest of the entire club in terms of the the, the pace of change and the pace of growth. I mean, the club's playing, playing catch-up in all sorts of areas. As, as you can imagine, I mean, you know, Wolves, Wolves have been a championship club for uh, what uh, the vast majority of the past three decades. So to now be chasing Champions League football, what they hope will be on a regular basis, you know, the, all sorts of aspects like retail, commercial, marketing, they're way behind in terms of the levels of the clubs that they're competing with and infrastructure and in- income as well. So um, so the academy's got to play catch-up and, and to be fair, it, it, it has done. Uh, 10 years ago, they had about a handful of, of academy full-time staff and that would now be somewhere approaching uh, 100, I would say. Um, but trying to produce players that are good enough for the first team 
from almost a standing start, you know, that are ready for top six Premier League football, it's almost impossible, really. So I know that they're looking to um, to develop and invest in the academy and they're doing things like improving the pitches. The pitches are now up to first-team Molyneux standard and they've got full-time doctors and the players will go on overnight stays now for away games. It's just little things that that the probably commonplace for clubs that Wolves are now competing with but this is all very new for Wolves and like I said they are they are having to play um, to play catch up I'd like to uh, uh, talk for a moment about if we can the sort of geographical location within which Wolves exists because I'm, I'm presumably I'm right in thinking I mean there are a lot of clubs in, in the Midlands uh, what's the catchment area like for um for uh, for the academy because I mean as, as you mentioned before Wolves have been a championship club for, for a long time perhaps there were um, you might say Villa, for example, might be a, a more interesting offer to a young teenager five years ago. Now, presumably, it's Wolves. So these things obviously take a, a long time to catch up. But do, do you think that's right with, with the catchment area? Yeah, yeah. historically, it's been very fruitful. And if Wolf, and Wolves have produced many, many championship level players over the years, you know, directly from their academy. And obviously some which who've gone on to greater heights, Jolene Lescott and, and Robbie Keane would be, you know, a couple of the really obvious examples. But yeah, in general, and they've got quite a lot out on loan at the moment, doing well. Uh, Dion Sanderson's uh, gone to Cardiff. Uh, Ryan Giles has done well out on loan at Shrewsbury this season. So they've, they've had no problem really developing um, championship standard players. But to, to like, like I was saying earlier, to generate players good enough for the top six in the Premier League is an altogether different matter. And that will involve um, a lot of time and investment in coaching and facilities and perhaps we'll see the perhaps we'll see that bear fruit in a few years time but for now they are looking overseas at, at a lot of academy at academy talents and we've seen a, quite a few coming in the past couple of years Christian Marquez is is the one that they're really pinning their hopes on who they signed from Grasshopper Zurich uh, last year so uh, I think we'll see quite a lot of uh, as I said Fosun are an investment firm they're investing in the future and, and I think we'll see more of this in the coming years. So, I mean, I'm just going to stick on this for a moment and maybe there is no real answer to this question, but presumably when you are competing with um, with other clubs to try and produce players from your academy that could be top six level players, you're not just talking about the local catchment area anymore. You're talking about comparing or competing, sorry, with, you know, Man City, Liverpool, Manchester United, clubs like that. Yeah, absolutely. And they are they are realistic in the fact that they that they're probably not going to produce that many players for the first team. And they are sort of going down the Chelsea kind of model in terms of bringing players in that they know will probably never play for Wolves and loaning them out, trying to increase their value. And we're starting to see to see that now, particularly in the last couple of years. They've got an awful lot of players out on loan um, and they're trying to replicate what other clubs have done and make the academy uh, sort of a self, self-sustaining self business, which uh, Scott Sellers, former uh, Newcastle midfielder, is heading up. He's become a very prominent figure in Wolves' hierarchy in the last couple of years. And Jeff Shee values his opinion very highly and he's been sort of entrusted with with overseeing the academy over, over the next few years. I mean they've got they've got great facilities which previous owner Steve Morgan spent a lot of money on improving. It really is fantastic what they've got down there at Compton Park. So um it'll be more in terms of investing in young players and they've got Steve Davis, ex crew manager who runs the 18s and uh, yeah they've got high hopes that, that that they can bring some players through in the coming years. Um, Tim, I wanted to flag up. I was I was listening to your on my on my government sanctioned exercise this morning. Um, I was listening to your interview with Shay Olafinjana. Um, and firstly, what what one unusually impressive person he is. I mean, if yeah. anyone hasn't heard that, go go and listen to it. Um, he sounds like the most qualified footballer in the history of the game. I mean, he's got what what are his degrees in? 
He's got a degree in chemical engineering. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, I think he planned to go into the oil industry when he retired from football. But as he as he said in the podcast, he hasn't got much use for it at the moment. Is he someone, Tim, that um, in this new structuring, this new sort of horizontal hierarchy world, um, is he someone that, that the club has kind of earmarked to rise to prominence over the next few years? I think so. I think I think this current moment where they're looking for for new senior figures probably comes too soon for him. But he is a he's a very interesting character. Yeah, a degree in chemical engineering. He's he's got two master's degrees, um, one of which is in sporting directorship. And I know he's very keen to go into that in the future. Um, and he sees this kind of loan manager's role he's got at the moment. I mean, he's loan manager sounds like he's working in the bank, banking industry, but he's he's in fact you know traveling to. Slovakia and Ireland to keep an eye on Wolves' uh, loan players. Um, he sees that as a mini kind of sporting director role um, and preparing him for the for the future. And whether that's at Wolves or somewhere else, um, I think I think he's, he's certainly got the intelligence and the knowledge and the contacts to 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 have a decent career ahead of him. Yeah, actually, even if people aren't interested in Wolves specifically, I'd urge them to listen because you learn an awful lot about what a loan manager actually does. That comment, that quote about it being sort of a morning, um, a mini sporting directorship um, is really pertinent because he talks about how individual players need, you know, different types of attention when they're out on a loan and some just want to be left alone to get on with it because they're adults. Others require that sort of that feedback three or four, every three or four days. It's so, so interesting. So yeah, obviously uh, he's got, uh, what, 25, 30 players out on loan uh, all over the country, all over Europe. They've all got differing levels of experience or, or needs as well, really, you know, personally, you know, do they need a father figure? Do they need to be left alone to get on with it? Uh, Ryan Bennett, who's 29 at Leicester, you know, might not need uh, too much looking after. Um, so, yeah, he's, I think he's, he's learned an awful lot from from doing that role. And it's it's an interesting area to look into because, yeah, you've got two squads worth, two teams worth of players there out on loan that all, that all need looking after in one way or another. Uh, I would love to talk about Adama Traore now because, uh, core blimey, what a player. Um, Alex, I'd lo- I don't think we've ever really spoken about Traore that much before. Would you give me your sort of a tifo goggle eyed view of Adama Traore? But what's a tifo goggle eyed view? I don't know. It's <laughs> I just where I, it's where I say something that's meaningless <laughs> and then you start okay. talking. Do you know the bit where you start talking? It's that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, Adama Traore is... Yes. And typically Alex's internet cut out there. So we don't get to hear his view. Just kidding. He comes back later. In the meantime, though, here's Seb asking Tim directly about Adama Traore. Um, I suppose it's it's a difficult one, Tim, because um, obviously the, the bulk of his improvement has come at Wolves. Um, but I read some really interesting interview, a really interesting interview with Tony Pulis where he talked about the player that he found when uh, Adam, Adam, Adam Arturi was at Middlesbrough. He talks about how um, coaches, you know, in, in the early parts of his career, had, had, he assumed thought he was thick or something or unable to take instruction. And that he was really a player that needed nurturing and needed careful attention rather than sort of shouting at. And I, I, I just wonder where kind of the Pulis effects, Pulis effect ends and the Nuno effect starts because obviously... I think maybe the first game which I really noticed his improvement was I was reporting on the the Spurs game at Molyneux earlier in the season and he absolutely tore Jan Vertonghen apart um, in a way that I... I know Vertonghen isn't really a full-time fullback, but even so, it was really quite startling. Um, so when did you first notice that instead of being the kind of the, the cliched quick winger who could beat players but then fail to produce a final ball, when did he start to become as influential as he currently is now? 
He's, he's had such an interesting career path. And in answer to your question, well, he actually started this season at wing-back, which perhaps went unnoticed at the time, but Wolves were playing um, in Belfast and um, Armenia back in July uh, for Europa League qualifiers and Matt Doherty was injured. So he started at wing-back and there was a lot of suggestions last summer that Traore could be on the way out. I mean, Wolves had three forwards and one was going to stay and it's it's him that stayed ahead of Ivan Cavallero and Helder Costa who went on loan to Fulham and Leeds respectively. And Nuno's obviously seen something in Traore, this unique talent as he, as he calls him. And they spent a lot of time together in the summer, one-on-one on the, at the training ground at Compton and Nuno was out there with his iPad, you know, showing videos to Traore where he's going right and wrong and... He wasn't that popular amongst the Wolves fans last year and his his kind of contribution to the second half of last season could be summed up in the uh, FA Cup semi-final against Watford when he came on to try and save the game and ballooned the ball into the stands. I remember at one point when Wolves had a rare opportunity to attack and that was sort of like, oh, Traore again, you know. So I think he's, he's added a team dynamic and a defensive ability to his game. I mean, the standout game for Traore this season was at Man City away when he scored both goals, both set up by Raul Jimenez. He was up front, but he actually started that game at right wing back, um, marking Raheem Sterling out the game with his incredible pace. And um, I think, I think, yeah, he's maybe been misunderstood by managers over his career. I mean, even when he was a kid at Barcelona, the, he used to play at right back um, for the very specific reason that they would the goalkeeper would roll the ball out to him and then he'd run all the way upfield and score. And that was basically that was basically the tactic. And then that was mirrored again at Middlesbrough all these years later, where I was speaking to George Friends recently, a former teammate of his, and he said the tactic was give it to Traore and and, and see what he can do. And he'll just take players on at will. But what people were perhaps forgetting is that he needed a bit of finesse and he needed to perhaps come inside on his left foot sometimes instead of always going to the byline, which we've seen more of this season. And we've seen him now, he's getting his head up before he crosses the ball. Very simple things that he wasn't doing before. So um, Nuno and, and Tony Pulis, what they've both done together is put an arm around him and say, look, you know, um, you've got a wonderful talent here and... Maybe it's time to exert some control and not just blitz past players and then and then figure out what you're going to do. Um, and he's actually slower as well. This, is, this story's been told quite a bit, but he worked with the former Olympic sprinter, Darren Campbell, who said, look, you're, all, you're already, you're faster than anybody at 80%, let alone at 100%. So maybe slow down a little bit and think about what you're doing and then you've got more control in possession. Again, it sounds very simple, but it's been very effective much of his improvement do you this might be something that Alex touches on later but how much of his improvement do you attribute to Raul Jimenez because anytime I've watched him live uh, Traore that is um, the combination between them just in the terms just in terms of not only how Jimenez moves and how he responds to um, Traore when he's on when he's in possession but also you know how, how important someone like Jimenez is in a you know counter-attacking situation is the pivot around all the around which these kind of yotas Traore's players like that are able to spring how much is about pairing him with the right kind of center forward yeah I think you're absolutely right and you know we saw that last season with Diogo Jota who went on an unbelievable hot streak towards the end of the season and that was down to Raul Jimenez as well because he's so intelligent and his movement and his, his passing ability and his unselfishness, you know, for a striker who scored 22 in 44 this season, he's very unselfish and he really is a team player. You take him out of that team and I'd be very, I'd be worried about Wolves. And I think he'd, I think he'd fit in 
at, at bigger clubs across the world. I really would. He's, he's got everything. He's, he's in many ways he's the perfect striker. So yes, um, he's been a big assistance. As has uh, Matt Doherty behind him. So Wolves basically changed formation from three five two to three four three this season to accommodate Traore and Doherty in the same team. Um, because they started the season dovetailing as wing-backs and Traore was briefly tried up front and I think Nuno realised that Wolves' right flank could be their major strength and let's get Doherty in the team behind him to relieve Traore of, of many defensive responsibilities and, and let him fly up front and Doherty spent the first few weeks of this new partnership trying fruitlessly to overlap Traore um, and <laughs> trying to get little combination plays going down, which which he liked to do last season with Ivan Cavallero and soon realised there's no point. Imagine to being told that's what you had to do before a game started. <laughs> this is this is your yeah, role exactly. within this game, is to outpace Adama Traore. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, Matt Doherty, uh, eight goals and eight, eight assists last season. A terrific attacking talent, but he's sort of sacrificed that a bit this season to, to let Traore fly and uh, and it's worked very well. Alex, the internet gods cut us off before, but you're back now. Um, and I suppose off the back of what Tim has been saying about Traore, I just wanted to know your opinion on him as a player and particularly how he fits into the Wolves team because he's um, he's he's pretty incredible, isn't he? He's quite unique. I Yes, he is unique. Um, I think Tim's made a, a really interesting point that probably doesn't get picked up on enough um, otherwise, which is that Traore, by adding this defensive aspect to his game and, and playing as a wing back, but also still dropping very deep sometimes when he's playing in a right wing position, is he gives Wolves maybe the one thing that they lacked, which is the ability to break a press from deep. So Wolves are very good at passing the ball. Moutinho particularly is, is very good at these kind of slide passes. But effectively, that would be playing the ball forward to Jimenez, who I agree to him is, is a superbly intelligent player and, and selfless in his running. But beyond that, it's quite difficult. Traore can pick the ball up almost on the edge of his penalty area and then carry it past one or two lines of the opposition press, which immediately gives Wolves the opportunity to push up, get their defensive line higher up the pitch and, and transition effectively into a counter-attacking thing. And he's kind of added like a almost like a Moussa Dembele effect, but from this kind of right wing back position, which is a, an aspect of his game that probably doesn't get commented on enough. Um, in terms of Traore, I mean, yes, I agree with everything that's been said. He's 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 slowed down. His decision-making has improved. He's been unafraid to come centrally, uh, which obviously allows him the opportunity to, to run at defenders or to run at the channel between defenders He's added some shooting, um, but I think it's really the way that, that that unit has has started to work together, and it's noticeable. For example, with Jimenez's, you know, the goals against Liverpool and Southampton spring to mind. That that Jimenez is is involved in that goal from a very deep build up position. He drops off, he collects the ball, he plays it out wide, and then there's this kind of gut bursting run to to get into the middle. And and these guys have despite the fact that this formation change from a 3-5-2 to a 3-4-3 has occurred, they have very, very seamlessly adapted to that. And it's a thing that maximizes all of their strengths. Um, and it's allowed Traore not to just be a sort of head down, try and be as fast as I can player, because he's working alongside other players that are so intelligent that that has elevated his game as well. Do you know, we, uh, we were speaking about Raul Jimenez as well, just after you got cut off, Alex. What do you think of him as a player? Um, very, very smart, very, very capable. I mean, he's he's the sort of player who 
I think I, I hate the phrase underrated um, or the expression because I, you know, if you're playing in the Premier League, clearly you're rated, right? But Jimenez is not often in conversations about the top level, uh, the top bracket of, of strikers in the Premier League, and he absolutely should be, in my opinion. If you, if you watch his his movement, his ability to to be at once a kind of almost Roberto Firmino dropping off striker, uh, linking play, collecting the ball, holding it up, knowing how to press and when to press, but also being the focal point for an attack. So he's he's effectively involved in in two phases each time Wolves attack. And that requires both great tactical intelligence, but also a, a huge amount of effort. Um, and his goal return and his assist return is is very impressive this season. You know, I, I think he's he's got six assists to go with his thirteen goals in the league, and and that's that's really good for a single striker. Love that Alex is dropping in a a Firmino there for our long term listeners. Just can't stop. Can oh, you? you just can't done stop it again, haven't yeah. I? I don't yeah, know what your problem yeah. is, um, Tim. <laughs> I want to ask you this now, uh, and this might seem like an odd analogy to draw, and it does sort of date me. But uh, I always think about the Everton team of sort of two thousand and nine. <laughs> Uh, and because they were like a perennial never quite making it to the top four, they're my favourite analogy for, uh, for for teams who end up in this situation. And I think we used to apply it to Spurs um, about four years ago as well. A team that has a, 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 a group of incredibly good players, all of whom you might think, well, that person probably could fit in at a, at, you know, a top club across Europe. But they, for whatever reason, as part of the cycle, they're still there at Everton. And a club that manages to get a, a bunch of players like that playing incredibly well and being at the same club all at the same time. Wolves feels to me a bit like one of those teams and presumably because they're performing so well in the Premier League and finishing in excellent position theoretically um, that encourages players to stay and, and you know stay for a longer term project but do you ever worry that a bit like that Everton team or a bit like you know what inevitably happens to these perennial outsider teams that they'll just get picked off at some point and when one or two uh, exceptional players leave other players do too? I worry what happens when the momentum slows. I mean, this has been a phenomenal two-year rise, meteoric, if you will. And if Wolves don't qualify for the Champions League this season, you know, will will some of these players look elsewhere? But I I don't recall the average age of of that of that fairly good Everton team that you that you bring up. But Wolves are probably a little bit younger. I would have thought. Yeah, so, I think they were. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Neves and Jota. Um, Jota's one that doesn't really get talked about enough, but he could be he could go wherever he wants in the game, and he's sort of twenty two, twenty three. Neves similar age. Treyor is twenty four, I think. Um, the average age is, is still pretty young. Even Johnny Castrotto at left wing back is only sort of twenty five, though he looks much older. Um, so I, I think if Nuno's there, then then these key players will will stay there, and they buy into this project as they all call it, as Nuno's called it from day one. You know, he's here for the project, and they seem to enjoy it. Believe believe it or not, I'm going to shock you here, but they seem to enjoy living in Wolverhampton, <laughs> and um, they've all, <laughs> they've all brought their families over here, and they're all enjoying being part of this special journey but yes you do you do wonder when when there is that one sort of average season or a season where they don't surpass expectations as to um, as to who decides to move on and Nuno's future is obviously key to all that and he brings it all together do you think he, he's um, going to uh, interest other clubs I think he, I think he will but I don't think he would leave unless it was for a top top club um 
sort of knowing him as I do, I think I think he'd want to be courted by a top top club. And there were, there were rumours that Arsenal were in for him last uh, last summer or, or autumn when they bought in Arteta. But from what I understand, Nuno was on was on a long list of sort of ten to twelve, and that didn't interest him at all. Whereas if if Arsenal had come to him and said, look, you're our man, we want you, then that might have appealed to him a bit more. But I think he's at the stage of his career now where he'd only leave Wolves for for a, what you'd call a top club, a Man City or Real Madrid or something like that. Oh, I do love a little bit of insight into, uh, into the mind of a manager. Hey, listen, you've mentioned uh, Fosan a couple of times now. Um, and you've mentioned them as it relates to to their aim in terms of their sort of business practice and dealings. What is their aim? I mean, I'm key, obviously, I'm aware that, you know, Wolves supporters will hopefully be listening to this episode, but so will uh, supporters of other clubs. So just if we can give them a little bit of context here, um, what what is Fosun's aim? Well, good question. I mean, I think initially, they well, they scoured Europe looking for a football club, their, their first football club to invest in. I mean, they're, they're a huge multi-billion pound company, a conglomerate, as they call it, with, I think, five very rich investors sort of got together in like 1990 and, and formed this company that invest in many others across the world. Uh, Thomas Cook would be one of the ones that that they have done in recent years. Um, and they, yeah, they branched out, looked for a football club. Wolves were the one that they saw the quickest growth in. So they bought Wolves, believe it or not, for, for 30 million from, from Steve Morgan. Um, and according to recent estimates, it's now worth 400 million. Wow. And how did they identify just, that that was the quickest growth, Tim? I'm fascinated by what, what I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you have uh, information, but what, what were the insights yeah. there? Well, they they looked at uh, A, history, B, uh, infrastructure. So Wolves is, as I've said before, Steve Morgan invested very heavily in the training ground. So that was there. Um, potential growth. Um, Wolves were a fairly decent championship team um, at the time that perhaps wouldn't need too many signings to take them to the next level. Um, and silly things like they really like the colour of the team shirt um, and they like the badge because it's very marketable and they like the wolf and wolves and they think that that appeals and is and is memorable to the to the Chinese that market. That is cool. Perhaps. <laughs> it's bizarre, I mean, isn't it? Wolves but are cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you might not think about it as an obvious thing, but yeah, that that's that's what went through their heads. And and I was in Shanghai last summer where they opened uh, a Wolves club shop in Shanghai, and it, <laughs> there was this bizarre sight of of the wolf. I don't know if you've ever seen the wolfy mascot that, that parades around. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah. So so they sort they sort of turned grizzled ima- and terrifying. Ima- well, imagine Wolfie in Chinese cartoon form. <laughs> Um, but then that imagined in real life. Oh, I mean, well. Connor Cody was there. I've never, I've never seen him look so spooked in, in his life. It was, uh, <laughs> it was it was quite terrifying. Um, so so yeah. But initially, we, they kind of stated they'd only be here for ten years. But uh, from recent things that Jeff Shee has said, you know, they, they they may be here for longer. And they've certainly become more important to Foson. There is no doubt about that. Um, when they obviously produce their annual accounts every year and that comes with a nice fancy brochure and the first year that Wolves were included in that they they weren't even mentioned in this brochure and then last year they had a big double page spread uh, we're proud of Wolves they're in the Premier League um, what can we do with them you know we hope to sign uh, Chinese players which hasn't gone very well and um, 
and a Wolves fashion brand in China and all this stuff. And Guo Guangshang, who's who's the big boss man back in back in China, he's launched a Twitter account recently, and in his profile, he says he's a Wolves fan and, and all this stuff. So um, it, they are they are taking it very seriously, and they see huge growth um, in the club and what they can do and expand the brand. And they've they've barely. Um, put their toe in the water in China, where as as you obviously Liverpool and Manchester United and, and others are, are far far ahead of them in the pecking order when it comes to selling shirts and whatnot. But but little by little, you know that they're they're, um, they're they're making an impact over there, and that they truly truly believe that Wolves can be one of the biggest clubs in the world. Tim, before we um before we move on, I just want to give a plug to the um to the museum at Molyneux, which is pretty much my favorite place in the entire league it's amazing it's got um if anyone finds themselves at a loose end with a couple of hours to kill in wolverhampton then go in there i think it costs about eight quid and they've got some amazing things like um got the the referee's whistle from the 1960 fa cup final they've got a um they've got a penalty simulator where you can take penalties against um goalkeepers of wolves past and wayne hennessy I don't really want to talk about that, but let, let's also let's also remember that it was the dead of winter, and I was wearing Timberlands when I was sure, in there. So let's sure. let's just add that caveat. Wayne Hennessy foiled me. I did quite well against Mike Stahl. Um Other other figures for antiquity foiled me a few times. as I well. I feel like you've just brought this up so that you can tell people you were wearing Timberlands. Yeah, it's kind of the crappiest humble brag going, isn't yeah, it? It, it is. wasn't okay. Um, Tim, obviously, we're living in a, a strange coronavirus world at the moment. Um, but the topic of Molyneux's expansion or redevelopment is remains pertinent, but also changing. What is um, I mean, the latest that I'm aware of is that they're they're going to um replace the Steve Ball stand with some kind of temporary structure. Is that right, or adapt it in some way? Um, what they've oh, yeah, this is this is a very changeable subject. But what they plan to do this summer for the here and now is to install a, a temporary corner stand. Ah, about okay. 500 seats in in between the steeple stands and the rowdy south bank which is on the on the right as people look from from the tv point of view so yeah as of one year ago in fact perhaps a year ago to the day they um made a very public uh, showing of what molyneux may look like in the future they unveiled these images at the end of season awards last season of, of a sparkling gleaming 50,000 seats uh computer generated stadium it looks and amazing. That was, it really yeah, does. that's it does. It, it, it it's mouthwatering, and that that's the that was the plan. But they've sort of rode back on that in the last year. And whether this is involved, whether this is linked to um, Chinese investment overseas, being being perhaps been curtailed slightly or not, I, I don't know. Whether it's whether it's that uh, big an issue, or maybe it's just the simple fact that they're not sure if they can get get bums on seats. Um, Wolves historically have never really gone above 30,000 early 40s for an average attendance so if you're looking to build a 50,000 seater stadium you know obviously you want want that filled every week yeah Yeah. exactly so I think they've been a little bit cautious is is the word and they're investing in the team first and foremost mistakes have been made there in the past where Steve Morgan spent a lot of money on the stand where the museum is situated um uh, and prioritise that over spending money on the team, and then Wolves are relegated twice, and it was the apocalypse. So, um, so yeah, they're focusing on the team for the here and now, and the stadium will hopefully follow. But the Steve Ball stand that you mentioned has been around since 1979, believe it or not, when Andy Gray was still up front, and um, it hasn't been it hasn't been updated since then. So that needs doing at some point. But they don't want to spend an awful lot of money on a new stadium, and then a the team's performance suffers for it. 
or B, they don't see a return on that huge investment for what could be a couple of decades because Wolverhampton is, you know, not a city on the up, really. Um, and if you're going to bring in restaurants and, and hotels and casinos, you know, you need people to go to them. And Wolverhampton's very much in Birmingham's shadow on that front. So um, it's not as, not as simple as just um, adding a load of extra seats to a stadium, but they are looking into what they can do. Can you clear something out for me? I the last time I was there, um, you remember the the firework display which used to happen at night kickoffs before. <laughs> yes, yeah. So the last time I was there, I, I can't remember who it was against, but it, um, it didn't happen. And I I was I turned to the guy next to me in the press box and said, oh, you know, why not? And he was uh, he was local reporter, and he just said matter of factly, oh yeah yeah no no someone got hit by a firework, so stop doing it. Is that like I feel like there should be more to that story. <laughs> Um, so, well, this has happened twice at Molyneux in the last 20 years. I think in 2003, a, a firework directly flew into a woman's face. In oh, the, my God. In the, in the Billy Wright Center, which was very, very serious. And yeah. she was, um, it made it was a big news story at the time. This one was, was less serious in terms of um, firework injuries. Um, the firework um, hit the ceiling of the stand and rebounded back into the into oh the seats God. i'm laughing but, like, but fortunately i think there were no injuries this time um so for the second time in a couple of decades wolves put a halt to their fireworks displays <laughs> which um which to their chinese owners was it was a big disappointment as you can imagine um so yeah as far as i as far as i know they can't get council permission to to hold a firework display before every game which is a shame I know we've gone in depth enough now that we're talking about. The two it was just a matter of fact way the guy said said it, Joe. It was like no, it's it, it great, like yeah. one of those those risks of injury, which is just so typical of football. You know, being hit by a firework. My favourite bit of the podcast so far, <laughs> um, particularly because you described such a horrifying situation, Tim, in uh, quite a funny collection of words directly into her face. Did it's one of those. Yeah, you're not supposed to make me laugh when it's something as horrible as that. Hey, what are your expectations for next season? That's the last question. Oh, blimey. Um, well, we'll see where they are in Europe first. I mean, they're still chasing the Champions League on two fronts, which is which is crazy to say, but they really think they can win the Europa League. They really, really do. Yeah, why not? And judging, well, judging on who they've played so far, I mean, yeah, they've, they've got a great chance. If and as and when that hopefully resumes. So I would, I would say... Um, it sort of depends on on the fortunes of of other clubs in a way. I mean, if Arsenal and Spurs and Man United get, get it together, then uh, it makes Wolves' task much more difficult. But as it stands, they're a young developing team. They've got a lot of money to spend, and I think they can be top five, six for the for the next sort of two or three seasons. Oh, fantastic. All right, well, listen, Tim, thanks so much for coming. Um, I ho- will you come back uh, partway through next season, and we can sort of uh, update to where we are at that point. With the fireworks situation, yes, yes that's, of course. That's, that's all I'm interested in. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, Seb and Alex, thank you very much. And uh, we will be back later in this week with uh, something else and next week with uh, something else. And then there's more. There's always more stuff, isn't there? Uh, au revoir. Au revoir.